Thanks to Cry Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and my guest this week is Dermot O'Morda, the Quality and Sustainability Manager for the Endeavour Drinks Group, which is the business that runs Dan Murphy's and BWS. Now, these retailers hold an interesting place in the Australian drinks world. On the one hand, they are held up as monopolies, crushing small independent bottle shops and skewing the shape of the drinks landscape. On the other hand, they are outlets where more Australians buy alcohol than any other, and they are increasingly major partners to some of your favourite craft beer brands by becoming their de facto distributors. With such an influence on the beer landscape, Endeavour can have a major effect on the beers you drink. With freshness and drinking quality increasingly becoming a talking point around the craft beer community, many brewers point to the demands of the major retailers as the reason they put longer best-before dates on their products than they privately believe they should. Many consumers also point to long logistics chains unsuited to what are volatile products as being the reason their experiences are less than craft beer promises. In an increasingly competitive marketplace, decisions that Endeavour makes to either focus on improving the quality of beer in the consumer's hand or to search for scale and economies at any cost can have major repercussions for the beers we drink. As sustainability and quality manager, Dermot is at the centre of much that BWS and Dan's are doing in the beer space. And so this is a fascinating and timely chat that looks at all of these issues and beer, retail, freshness and quality. Enjoy the conversation. Dermot O'Morda, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Oh, thanks, Matt. Thank you very much for, for joining us. We did catch up uh, back in Good Beer Week and when you are on our uh, logistics panel, but there was a lot of interesting stuff that we talked about there that I sort of thought was probably worth us uh, sort of diving into a little bit deeper, uh, just you and I. So uh, thank you very much for, for reprising that. And uh, Look, I guess for those who weren't at the um, panel back in uh, May, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, well, currently I'm the Group Quality and Sustainability Manager for Endeavour Drinks Group. Uh, that's a role I came into in uh, January this year. Uh, my background, uh, I'm a uh, industrial uh, microbiologist. And uh, from there, I, that got me, I suppose, my first uh, experience into brewing. Uh, during the final year in uh, university, I uh, got the opportunity to do an industrial placement with a, a craft brewery in uh, in Dublin uh, city, and uh, I think that's where, yeah, that's where the love of craft beer started for me. It was back in 1998, and I think it was the, probably one of three craft breweries in Ireland at that stage. Um, now the beers that were, I was getting introduced to, you know, they. they you wouldn't really blink about them today. Uh, I think it was a craft beer, a blonde ale, a, a stout and a red ale. You know, pretty <laughs> standard dock uh, craft beers. But, you know, back then, it, you know, you're looking at the landscape of what was available and it was a lot of, uh, I suppose, high volume European beers and Guinness. And then it was a, a Budweiser, was a, a pretty big beer as well. And, you know, from coming from that to Seen beer and and the flavors as well, like are incredible. So um, 
when I graduate, or actually when I finish my uh, final exam, uh, I got a call and asked, uh, would I like to step in uh, and run the quality and brew beer? So yeah, went to uh, Dublin Brewing Company, spent about, about two years there and uh, learned a lot and then made the decision to uh, leave the brewery and do a bit of traveling. So I spent, I think, about a year and a half traveling and eventually arrived in Australia. Um, started making connections within the brewing industry here. Uh, I, I think the funny thing for me was that at the time, coming from Ireland, uh, my understanding was that things were going quite big in Australia and big in New Zealand. Uh, but uh, when I arrived here, it, it kind of wasn't the, wasn't the situation. I made a, made a few contacts in, with the guys at St. Arnoux and that led me into uh, those connections with... Uh, a brewery down in uh, Wollongong, Five Islands Brewing Company. So mm-hmm. I took up the role of brewer there for about half a year. Uh, at that time, then I did my IBD uh, certificate in brewing and packaging, and then got offered a, a role at uh, Malt Shovel uh, as a brewer. And uh, that was kind of that was yeah that that was for me my brewing career. Uh, from there, I moved into CUB into Spirit. And uh, then into uh, Asahi. Asahi was doing RTDs and carbonated soft drinks. And then from Asahi went into Nestle in uh, production management. So then about four years ago, a job came up with, uh, uh, within Woolworths Liquor Group that was at the time. And it was with their uh, clinical drinks business. And that was basically running quality for the business and uh, managing their uh, contract manufacturers. So what is it that, because uh, you obviously love craft beer and the, the brewing process, what led you to move out of a direct uh, brewing role into some of these uh, other you know, ancillary uh, quality roles? A lot of it was, I was following opportunity. Uh, where, you know, where the opportunity lay, I, I, I kind of went, and obviously there was uh, a financial incentive to it as well. Uh, at the time when I looked at, well, if you look back then, uh, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to get into many different breweries and get around. And if I, to be honest, at the time I was getting, you know, I had a young family, so it was on a personal level. Uh, you needed to get that stability. And I think that's the challenging piece even for some brewers today uh, around, you know, what they do get paid for what they do. I think, you know, looking at some of the, uh, stats on it, and you know, if you, even if you're a highly qualified degree, etc., you're probably looking just to make just not around a just not a hundred a year, which is a bit challenging if you're in uh, you know living in Sydney, etc. Um, I think what else as well uh, was the opportunity to actually work with a lot of these larger uh, businesses and get learnings from from these guys. Uh, where I started. Um, I would say I, I, I wouldn't have used, you know, what I learned initially as a kind of a forefront to say this is how it should be done and this is how you should run quality and safety and production. I think it, the the business was built on a passion and a dream for making great beer and really kind of cracking the market with craft in Ireland. Um, when I look at it now, I, you know, I see a lot of similarity between what I experienced then and what I see a lot of brewers go through uh, today in Australia. 
And, you know, having been there, I think it put me in a good position there to really get back and, and help the industry, uh, you know, be better than it is today and, you know, be the best it can. Um, working with the likes of, say, CUB in line, uh, and, and Nestle, I, I'd say I learned a lot on, uh, you know, some great, uh, disciplines like, uh, around manufacturing excellence, uh, quality and safety. Um, so I know how, you know, these businesses operate. So taking those learnings back now and being able to help, you know, some of the smaller guys with that, those learnings is a, you know, great thing for me. Okay, so you're, you're now the uh, Quality and Sustainability Manager for Endeavour Drinks. Just explain what your yep. role is there and, you know, what Endeavour Drinks um, and, and your role encompasses. Well, just for clarity, Endeavour Drinks Group is what was uh, originally the Woolworths Liquor Group. And uh, it was rebranded about uh, two years ago to the Endeavour Drinks Group. So the Endeavour Drinks Group really is the sort of the group of businesses, uh, Dan Murphy's BWS, Wine Market, Langton's, Cellmasters, and uh, Pinnacle Drinks. Now, uh, it's obviously primarily a, a retail business. And my role really is to manage the, the quality of products within those businesses. And the sustainability piece as well is just around, I suppose, how we manage our business sustainably, uh, to, particularly around, uh, with a pillar for three pillars is people, prosperity, and planet. And my focus really is on that, uh, planet pillar. So we're, I suppose, some of the key work streams we're, uh, focusing on this financial year is around energy, uh, waste reduction to landfill and, uh, packaging. Okay, and so within the, um, the, the the beer space that you occupy uh, with Endeavour Drinks, maybe you can sort of just explain a little bit about what your responsibility is and what you're driving within Endeavour Drinks in, in, in the beer space. Primarily, uh, in the focus would be uh, with the craft beer uh, brewers. Um, we really want to make sure that we've got great quality beer on shelf. That's, I suppose, the, the primary objective for this role. Um, what if I think if we look back and just the year that's gone by, uh, unfortunately, quite a large number of our withdrawals this year have been attributed to uh, craft beer, and the majority of those were linked to uh, packaging issues with cans, so leaking cans. Uh, there were a couple of, I think, secondary ferment issues as well. So I think my primary focus this year with the craft beer is really to uh, understand what's happened prior and what can we do now for the next, say, 12 months working with the industry to actually address those issues. One of the reasons that I wanted to speak to you is uh, the, you know, the, the focus on beer quality and use-by dates and some of those things from a consumer's point of view, but quality is much the, the quality issue in retail is much bigger than, I guess, the consumer uh, will ever realise. Um, just, just explain what's happened with some of those uh, cans, because you know, cans are an increasingly popular packaging uh, medium, and yet they are coming with quite a few issues in, in the retail space, aren't they? Yeah, there's quite a bit of science and engineering behind uh, getting a beer in a can and doing it well. And a lot of the time, you know, when a somebody starting a craft brewery, they've kind of come from an area where, uh, I suppose, from a home brewing perspective, and they're learning a lot. So I think uh, 
as you learn, you make mistakes, and unfortunately, what you don't know at the time becomes an issue later on, and you run into these quality issues. So the look, just back to those quality issues, uh, it's as simple as cans leaking. So steam checks not been properly uh, performed, not understanding your, the maintenance of equipment, and really understanding the you know the checks you need to be doing uh, post packaging to ensure that you've got the job you were trying to do. The more I suppose we talk about it, the more you know these are pitfalls people are you know brewers are falling into. Uh, we can share these uh, lessons and you know hopefully then make people more aware that these are things they need to be uh, aware of and managing. Um, now I think the likes of the uh, organisations such as the Independent Brewers Association, uh, these are things that are quite strong in their uh, strategy, particularly around the quality pillar. And they've got some great people working behind that to really help their members uh, understand what they need to know. You did mention that re-fermentation uh, or secondary fermentation has been an issue. Are there any more packaging issues? Uh, a lot of our listeners are um, brewers. So uh, yeah. are, are there any more packaging issues that uh, you know, are creeping up in, in, in the retail space that uh, brewers should be aware of? No, I think the biggest concern really is the... It, is the can and getting them properly sealed. The referment I would uh, attribute to, uh, you know, what do you do with your, uh, from a site level, uh, how well do you know your, your micro? Are you doing your, you know, just cleaning? Have you done your validation that your cleaning is set up the way it should be? Once you finish cleaning, then are you doing a verification that your cleaning has been done correctly? So have you got the control points in place that, uh, you know, your traffic light system which says that, you know, this, this clean with the green, it got the right time, right temperature, right concentration of chemical, having done the validation work that that's what you need. Uh, I think some of the, they, they may not be going down to that level yet, but that's something that, they're, again, back to the IBA, the, the help is there. They've got some really, you've got some really good people in, in uh, the industry that know what they need to do and, uh, you know, even looking at some of the hubs, uh, particularly what I can talk of now is, uh, Sydney definitely there's some really good support there for up and coming brewers, brewers that are, you know, that are already operating and in, uh, Brisbane, Queensland. I'm sure there's other areas, but I just can't talk, you know, from personal experience yet, uh, that I've seen that happen as well. But I think good thing about, uh, the brewing industry, there is camaraderie, uh, you know, as much as you're competing for shelf space, when it comes to brewing a good beer and, you know, supporting each other in the industry, brewers do that. Uh, I'd say I've seen similar uh, behaviours in in the Australian wine industry, particularly when there's a crisis or like there's a disaster, to, rather than letting uh, your competitor suffer people, you know, just forget about the competition, actually step in and help each other get out of the crisis. And uh, I think that's the similar, uh, I suppose, behaviour then with the, the brewing industry in Australia and worldwide, particularly with craft beer. So if we talk about the, the secondary ferments, uh, yeah, you've really got to be clear on, you know, the quality of your yeast, your, uh, your cleaning, uh, your sanitation, and uh, whether, I suppose, even the question on pasteurisation, I know that I think pasteurization is a is quite a I suppose a, it's a sensitive issue. 
But I think if you're stepping, if you're sending your beer into a, a larger network and it's traveling, you, you need to have it stable. And um, there was an interesting um, paper that uh, the guys from Stonewood presented at uh, BrewCon on um, hop creep. And with the hop creep, you're seeing that uh, you're actually getting uh, the opportunity for a secondary ferment since uh, I suppose uh, fermentable sugars become available from the breakdown of the uh, enzymes within the hops uh, through dry hopping. And if you haven't, uh, I suppose, either deactivated those enzymes or uh, killed off uh, the yeast, uh, there's potential then for secondary ferment to occur in trade. And, you know, it, worst case scenario, there is a sa- there's a food safety hazard where you're talking about uh, increased pressure in, your, uh, in a, a sealed container. And um, if that happens, particularly with a, you know, with a can, it's quite likely the can will rip. And if it reaches enough pressure with a bottle and if the crown doesn't, or if the seal doesn't uh, release, you're talking about shattered glass. The likelihood, I'd say, is it's a, it's a lower likelihood, but the, the consequences are, you know, just not acceptable. And these kind of things happening would, uh, they would put a major dent on, on the, I suppose, public perception of what craft beer is and the trust that they can have in it. You've raised an interesting question because, you know, one of the things uh, over the you know, 15 or 20 years that craft beer has been craft beer, and there have been a lot of discussions about what is craft beer, um, and pasteurisation was one of those voodoo subjects where because it was something that big brewers had done, um, they a lot of people started to just associate that with um, the antithesis of craft beer. And yet from what I'm hearing, that if uh, you know if we have an expectation that beer is going to be crisscrossing the country and getting to us through retail, you know, larger retailers, then maybe we need to think what some of our definitions of craft are. Yeah, well, I think if you go back to when Louis came up with the idea of it, uh, he designed it specifically for beer. The whole process of uh, pasteurization was designed for for the beer industry by Louis Pasteur. And it was such a, had such a, you know, a massive impact on the quality of the product that other industries looked at it and said, that's a great idea. And, uh, you know, I think it's more synonymous now with, uh, milk that consumers would not drink milk unpasteurized. Uh, now the purpose of that really is more around the, the food safety elements that, you know, there's a higher risk of, uh, pathogens existing in milk. And, you know, the beautiful thing about beer is that you're not going to find a pathogen. Uh, just from the nature of the product. So when you move back to then, okay, we're not worried about a food safety issue with pasteurization, so maybe we don't need it. But I think when you look back at the reason that Louis Pasteur came up with it, it's uh, it's back to you know maintaining the shelf life of the, of the product. Beer is a bit of a unique product, isn't it? Because you know wine, uh, and, and I talk about it quite a bit, is that wine is almost a postcard from the place that the grapes are grown. And wine is designed to travel, it's designed to, whereas beer is, as a product, best drunk fresh. And we can send the ingredients um, and keep them fresh and then make the beer and consume it fresh locally on site. And yet just the consumer expectation is, um, you know, there's almost a sense of entitlement that any beer that's been made, I should be entitled to drink. Um, and Dan Murphy's, I guess, or the Endeavour Drinks Group sort of sits in the middle of that where you're meeting consumer demand with the vagaries and, and the sort of variability of beer in a retail chain. How hard is it to manage that? 
Oh, I'd say, uh, yeah, it's, it can, it's challenging. And it's definitely something that, you know, we're not going to do uh, with our eyes closed. So uh, I think we're, we're taking a couple of steps towards really uh, ensuring we can deliver on that. Um, okay, so if I look at uh, internally, uh, we're now getting a, a group of uh, sourcing, quality, technical, and marketing uh, people through uh, Cicerone training. So first group will be uh, sitting with your exam in October. So that's with certified Cicerone. Um, I think the purpose of that, you know, is really to establish uh, something similar to what we've got for Dan Murphy's uh, uh, wine panel. So we'd actually have a, an EDG uh, beer panel. We've definitely we've got people already in the business that are quite qualified and, and can do the uh, the organoleptic evaluation, uh, pick up faults, etc. But it's really building the knowledge base and uh, increasing the number of people within the group that have, a, I suppose, a common language and a common way of uh, evaluating a beer and, you know, recognising what's good, what's not. So you, 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 you're training the staff, but I guess um, yeah. the, the central theme of the panel we did back in May was looking at the, re- the retail system had evolved around the highly centralised breweries where we had a, you know, essentially a major brewery in each state um, and the, the retail chain was w- w- with very shelf-stable beer, and the retail chain was pretty much designed to service those non-volatile beers. But with the, the, the rise of craft beer, yeah. having that same highly centralised, you know, central warehouse um, for you know, national distributed national um, retailers like Dan Murphy's, it doesn't serve um, craft beer just as well. So, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about what brewers need to be doing to make their beer fit the, the system. What's Dan Murphy's doing to, um, you know, in, ensure that consumers are getting hop-driven beers fresh? Okay. I'd probably stretch it out between Dan and BWS. Uh, I'd start it with BWS. So initially, uh, what they've gone and looked at local lead ranging. So uh, what's in the market around a particular, say, cluster of stores and getting breweries to, uh, working with breweries to do uh, local deliveries to those stores. That's helped a lot. Okay, so you basically got a local store and a local brewery and that local brewery is making uh, deliveries direct to that store. I don't think you can get any fresher than that. And a lot of those uh, stores would uh, receive dockets and cold chain that's cold stored at a brewery and it's directly transferred into the fridge at the store and you know there's a couple of maybe an hour or so where it might be traveling at ambient so from a perspective of impact from temperature it's, it's not a lot to consider Dan's are working they, they do a similar model as well uh, for uh, local breweries to their stores too from a, I think from a, like if you talk about, you know, what are we looking at from a, a larger network? At this stage, we're really getting to, we're understanding what that network looks like. So we're doing temperature monitoring of the DCs this year. We're mapping out the network and understanding what kind of temperatures are in the various parts of the lakes of the, the journey between DCs and stores. And we're looking at opportunities to, I suppose, use what we have available right now. One of those uh, uh, potential opportunities we're looking at is uh, 
what we would have used as uh, config rooms in the DC. So there's potential there that we'll be able to move uh, some of the, the yeah some of the high value craft beers into these rooms. So it's essentially we'll be able to keep the beers below uh, 18 degrees centigrade. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think um, sometimes we get away with treating beer worse because most people don't know what uh, you know spoiled beer tastes like, and if you know if, if there was some visible sign like beer went brown if it had been uh, you know treated badly. Um, the, the the retail system, well, <laughs> I was going to say the retail system would have had to change, but then again, brewers would have probably discovered some way to stop it from browning. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but either way, uh, there, there's not the same. There doesn't seem to be the same pressure on the beer um, retailing and uh, logistics chain to ensure beer gets gets in better because there's never ever been a driving need for them to. If we look at like some of the European beers and green bottles coming into our uh, into you know into our uh, market here, a lot of consumers would perceive Lightstruck as a, uh, a characteristic of those beers. Whereas back in their home market, having not gone that journey and you know maybe just delivered fresh, uh, you're not going to pick that uh, off taint uh, off flavour off up. Um, and it's, it's pretty much what you get used to. Um, now, I think what we need to understand is what the impact of these supply chains is having on the beer. And one of the things I'd, you know, be quite, uh, and I, I think this is part of the discussions and, you know, the engagement we're, we're having with the brewers, et cetera, is that step one, brew the beer well. Step two, uh, what can we do to move it well? So I think you look at the local ranging, that's a really good plus on that one. You're moving a short distance from brewery to store, store it, store it, uh, uh, cool. And then, you know, you get a quick turnaround. You want, you don't want beer sitting around for long periods of time, particularly craft beer. Like, if I looked at, uh, you know, the, I suppose the traditional, uh, what was out there in the bigger volume beers in Australia for the last couple of decades. A lot of what we're talking about now really wasn't an issue back then. And it's really when the, the, the why we're talking about what we're talking about now really, it, it, I think it has been driven by, uh, the craft beer industry. And it's driven by the fact that we now have beers that aren't as suitable and aren't as forgiving to uh, mistreatment. Uh, like if I look at, you know, an IPA, for example, if you, you know, even if an IPA is saying 12 months shelf life, it's probably, you're lucky to get it past six, if not sooner, right, before you go, yeah, it's not the best tasting beer I've had. Now, if you give that beer, don't package it well and give it plenty of oxygen and, you know, then heat it, etc. It's, it, you know, the the detriment, the aging impact's just going to be uh, just a catalyst to it, and you're just going to not get a great taste in beer. So it's it's a it's a combination of doing it, brewing it well, moving it well, storing it well, and then selling it well that uh, gives you the end result of uh, a consumer picking up a, a beer from a store and getting a, a really good beer. So it's not just what I suppose what we do our side, but it's a it's a it's a team effort when it works. I guess Dan Murphy's 
is often the subject of finger pointing when you look at uh, breweries putting 12 months uh, best before date on their beers. And, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of brewers say, well, we only put 12 months on because Dan Murphy's requires us to. Is, is, is that true? Like, do you require brewers to put 12 months? No, we, we don't. We definitely don't do that now. That's not the case. Um, I think if you look at uh, what's needed, the best before date really represents to a consumer when they look at it, they go, if I consume within this date range, that and if the beer's been properly cared for, uh, I should be getting a, a good tasting beer. But again, if we talk about the example of an IPA, um, there's an IPA heavily hopped, a lot of aroma, you know, when it gets to, say, 10 months, 11 months, so it doesn't really give you the best representation of what that beer was and would you, in your mind, if you're putting it into a competition, present it as a, as a beer that represents your brewery? Um, you know, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd question that. Yeah, if you looked at an Imperial Stout, you're telling me it's two years old and uh, I'd taste it, I'd probably go, yeah, the, the age has worked well on it. So it really is, uh, I, I, you know, when we talk about age and shelf life, it really is uh, style dependent. So, so what um, expectations do you have around uh, brewers and the recommendations they put on beard? If they put a recommendation on, do you expect them to stand behind it? And do you guys have uh, your own processes for verifying, you know, for, for saying, well, they've got 12 months on this IPA? Will Yeah, I okay, at this stage, uh, what I'd say is, as a brewery, you've made this beer. It's your brand. It represents, I suppose, your brewery and what you believe is a, a good-tasting beer. Um, when your consumer, uh, when your customer uh, buys that beer and drinks that beer, um, yeah, sure, they'll be thinking about where they bought it from. And if they're not happy with it, they're more than welcome to come and talk to us about it. And, and customers do. We'll look after them and, you know, do a, we'll resolve the issue. However, when they think about it, they'll go, that was, that beer was from that brewery and, uh, you know, it, it was a bad experience. I suppose the top of that then they start thinking, is that what all craft beer is like? So it's, it's, you know, you're not helping the industry. You're not helping the brewery. You're not helping the customer by giving them, by putting a shelf life on the beer, which isn't reasonable. Um, with that said, I think we need to be on the other front. Giving a making sure the beer is stable enough to at least get through the network and sit there for like four to five months, six months. Uh, you know, sending a beer in that's going to last, say, two. You know, I've seen some of the cannibals uh, sealed, and you probably get two weeks shelf life on the beer. It's just the way it's packed, the amount of oxygen, it's the sterility. There's a lot of yeah, so just. Uh, factors there that just make the beer and uh, just give it a short shelf life. So I think we definitely need beers that are stable, able to go the distance. You know, we know the traveling, that if you're in a, particularly if you're in a larger uh, distribution across Australia, there's a lot of traveling for a beer to go from, say, Perth to Sydney and vice versa. Uh, Australia is a hot country. Uh, we need to, uh, you know, there's periods of time when it does get stored in, you know, DCs, etc., and making it a store. So uh, these are the considerations to be made uh, with making sure beer is uh, suitable for that kind of, uh, I suppose, 
journey. So um, I think this brings it back to, you know, what do we do to stabilize the beer? That's the pasteurization element. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's definitely a method that works. And I think there's other considerations when you pasteurize beer, like if you've got lower oxygen uh, levels, if you, yeah, if you can minimize the oxygen levels in, in your beer, uh, during pasteurization, the impact is far less than if you had high uh, oxygen levels. So I think there's factors that you can work with to minimize the impact on flavor when you pasteurize a beer. Okay, so that's what brewers can do. Uh, what's Dan Murphy's doing? Because, you know, for example, you've got much more shelf space, um, warm shelf space, than you have cold shelf space. Um, and yet, you know, and so, so beers are sitting around for a while. Um, is that changing? And, and that's after it's been through the uh, distribution process. You know, are, are you looking at what sort of styles are most appropriate for shelf storage versus maybe uh, you know, fridge storage? Yes, yes, definitely. So we, we would be looking at uh, what beers are more suitable to uh, ambient. Uh, I think fridge space, there's still quite a lot of fridge space in Dan's, particularly, uh, yeah, the Dan's network. You've got the walk-in fridges, uh, and if I look at BWS as well, certainly, uh, some of the, the more, uh, stores that are centered towards craft, there's an education piece now with a lot of the staff around the, the storage necessary for the, the correct storage for these, uh, for these beers. And most of these beers now will be actually uh, stored at, uh, within the fridge. Um, now, just speaking from experience, I, I did visit uh, Glee BWS last week, and pretty much every craft beer that was being sold uh, from um, from that store was in the fridge. The only beers I could see that were not in the fridge were the ones that had been used for display. But all the other craft beers were just uh, actually uh, store cold, which is really good to see. Um, I think then the other part of it is uh, stock rotation, you know, clear, yeah, and that's where I go back to the brewers as well. Just, you know, we need to have clear, legible date coding. Uh, telling us a beer was packed on a particular date doesn't really help in with a store that's trying to work on a best before code. Legally, it has to have a best before code if it doesn't, if it, it isn't uh, something that can go be, uh, beyond two years. So if it's a product that's uh, best drunk within uh, less than the two-year mark, it must be it must have the best before code. The best before code needs to be clear and legible, so the store can then do proper stock rotation. So the stores need to be looking at what stock they've got on hand, understanding the age of the stock, and doing the rotation as required. That's interesting because uh, we've seen a number of brewers move towards a brewed on date um, because yeah. they've they've heard if if they're concerned about freshness, um, they a number of them have put three months on their um, on, on their beers, but then they've been told by distributors and retailers, um, not necessarily Dan Murphy's, but you know, that a beer that is only one month old but has two months left on its best before date is being punished for that um, over a beer that, you know, maybe four months old but has five months left on its used by date. So to be ranged in Dan Murphy's, you have to have a best before date. Well, it's a, it's a legal requirement. It's, I suppose it's not our requirement. The Food Standards Australia New Zealand uh, stipulate that got the less than two-year shelf life. It's got to have the best before date on it. 
Uh, and it's just really around, uh, I suppose, uh, information to consumer that, you know, they know they'll pick it up and if it's consumed within this particular, you know, before this date, I'm actually getting a, a, a pretty good representation of what the, the manufacturer wanted me to experience with this product. Um, and I think that's, that's really the key around, you know, I suppose this part of the, the discussion that we're talking about, the 12 months and what's really acceptable. It does have to come down to the brewery really knowing what their product looks like on shelves at a particular date. You know, I, I know brewers that are actually, you know, they've got the whole back regime set up where they've actually got, you know, representation of samples that have gone to trade sitting in storage and they're pulling those beers out and doing uh, sensory evaluation on those beers. And they're really understanding what, what you know, what, how that beer develops over time and, you know, what kind goes to it. Um, and I think as a brewer, you, you know, you've got to get to a point where, you know, you say, what would I see as acceptable for that beer to stay in trade? And that's the kind of information, the more you do. Initially, you might have a bit of a challenge, but, you know, if you're collecting the data, uh, both, you know, you, you, you've got a good method of doing it, you're collecting the data, you'll start getting a good picture then from subsequent evaluations of the same beer style. And as long as the process is maintained and it's, you know, you're pretty consistent in what you're doing. You should be able to get a pretty good feel then to what actually is a reasonable shelf life for your beer. Yeah, so I, I'm, from there I'll go, that's what you need to set it for. If we talk about the brewed on and uh, best before date, that those two uh, bits of information together, uh, you know, that's gold for a consumer. You know, you're able to tell them when you should drink it by and when it was packed. So, uh, and to your point, uh, where if we get a variation then on best before pods, if you can see when it was packed on and uh, your best before, it's a it's more even playing field. So I do see your point on what you're saying with uh, sort of giving a bit of a disadvantage to some breweries with how the information is uh, given. But legally, again, it needs to have that best before uh, code on it. But your position is that whatever the best before date on has to be a reasonable um, assessment of the beer's quality at that time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think if you talk about the, the reality of the larger network of, um, of the Woolworths network, the business doesn't, it doesn't run on, uh, you know, packed on dates and into staff and whatever. It, it, our, our beers, when they enter into uh, the di uh, distribution centres, they're logged in under the best before code. And that then we can actually run a, uh, a first in, first out uh, with the beers into, into trade. So we, we've got good stock rotation at a DC level as, uh, through a, an automated system. So we're guaranteed to always get the freshest beer in the store. And then at store level, it really is that information on the can or the package with the legible uh, day coding that is very important then for the store uh, staff that they can actually read it and then be able to do stock uh, the rotation then of uh, a, the, all the stock out first. Cool, Matt. Look, this is a topic that we could discuss uh, for uh, ages, I'm sure. Certainly something we'd love to uh, pick up and uh, follow and, and, as we see the industry grow and develop and uh, you know, uh, follow up a few more uh, of these topics with you. Yeah, great. Dermot O'Mortar, thank you so much for joining us on Beer as a Conversation and uh, hopefully I'll get to have a beer with you soon. Yeah, thanks, man. I look forward to it. Take care.
Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. And we look forward to another conversation next week. <laughs>